speaking on the sovereignty of God and what's going on in people's lives. You know, why does God let good, bad things happen to good people? You know, that kind of thing. And sometimes there, there isn't a lot of answers, but I know that you'll never figure out because, okay, we're getting off, but I'm going to share it with you because these are things that helped me and helped my students that went all over the world. Um, one was a statement that God would not allow anything to come into your life which is beyond your control, which will ruin or hinder God's purpose for your life. And that statement is phenomenal. And as we, I told you, we collected Christian biographies. We have over a 1,000 of them in our basement. You read the life of great Christians, all of them said something like that, that God is in control. God will not allow anything to come into your life which is beyond your control, which will ruin or hinder God's purpose for your life. Is he sovereign? Is he on the throne? Yes. See, can I believe that? And what happens is um, it rains in our parade, and we didn't expect it, and we get all upset about it. You know, it, something happened, and it wasn't in my plans. But I have to realize that God is sovereign, and God can allow good and bad things to come into my life. Um, that, you know, I can mess up my life, right? It's beyond your control. It's a real key there. I can do things that will mess up God's purpose and plan for my life. But if I'm walking with the Lord, uh, most of you know uh, or remember the story of, of Gracia Burnham. Well, Gracia Burnham was one of my students, one of my wife's students. Her office was next to mine at the Bible school. Remember the gal that was captured in the Philippines by those? So Gracia was just, I mean, she was my one of my daughter's best friends. And I mean, we've known Gracia, my wife, as soon as she was captured, my wife prayed for Gracia every single day until she was released, prayed for her again for another full year, not knowing why God would not release her of that prayer burden. But when you read her book, you realize why God told my wife to pray for her because of the struggle she was going through and so on. And, and my wife is still praying for Gracia on a daily basis, you know, trying to be a mom to, with, you know, with no husband and kids and stuff. And, and uh, you know, Gracia struggled with that same question. You know, why when they're going to try and get R&R &R, that they ended up running through the jungles for a year? And then when they're getting liberated, her husband gets killed. You know, can you answer that? If you can, you're a far better person than I am. I don't know the answer to those things. But, <clears throat> see, I thought that forgiveness, when I forgave my dad and worked it all through and all the, the good things that began to follow that, um, that that was the end of it. But one of the things that I did struggle with is that I was talking to this young man, and that is I had bitterness towards God for putting me in that family. That was a real hard thing for me to deal with, that I that God put me in that family. I go, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, and, you know, forget it, guy. You think I'm going to come back to one of your stinking seminars even though it's free? I'm not coming. You know, when you say that God put me in that family and I wasn't wanted, God would not do that. You know, I mean, you can imagine what I was going through. I mean, all the pain and marriage struggles and, and being a lousy father and everything that was coming out of all of my stuff in the past, to say that God put me there, God, give me a break. Um, but anyway, God did put me there. And so God, I had to go one step further. And this step is not just forgiveness. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Kevin touched on it. There's only three things in the Bible about the Holy Spirit that we're told to do. One is what? Grieve not the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Spirit? When we say yes to sin. 
And to be filled with the Spirit, you just turn the page, you have the right kind of Bible, and it says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Now you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it says, quench not the Spirit in verse 19. And we quench the Spirit when we say no to God. Here, you know, we say, oh, God is sovereign, and then I tell him no. I'm not going to do that. It's too hard, I won't do that, or whatever. Okay, now... But putting it in the context is really, this is what really grabbed me, and that is verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Like, ooh! It's terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? But maybe I read it wrong. I should read one of the new translations. Maybe it says in some things, give thanks. I can handle that. You know, but in everything, give thanks. I read that the same way I read about uh, getting rid of bitterness. I read, in everything, feel thankful. It's not what it says. You go and look in the Greek, and no way. It says, everything what? Give thanks. You know, it's one thing for me to accept the family I was in, to accept the rejection that I had, it's another thing to thank God for it. And I needed to get there. That's why. Remember, don't give this before someone has worked through some of the other stuff or you're putting the, you know, the pole vaulting thing too high for them. They're not ready to go over it. But wait till God tells you to do this. Okay, now let me give you the insights. There's some insights I'd like you to work, down, work out to take someone through this when they need to go there. And I start with the insight I gave you. Obedience precedes understanding. God's telling me to do something here. So if I say no to this, what am I doing? Quenching the spirit. The very things don't quench the spirit. God tells me what to do. I say, I can't do that. No, I won't do it. Then I just quench the spirit. Okay. So obedience needs to precedes understanding. I don't have to figure this all out. I don't have to know all the... I always want to know the beginning and the end, you know, all that God's going to do if I do this. God, you show me and all the benefits of this, and I'll do this, maybe. Okay, number one, under obedience need to precede understanding. Thanking God is an act of my will done in obedience to God. God's not asking me to feel anything. God is asking me to do something. So thanking God is an act of my will done in obedience to God. Either I will or I won't. That's where it is. I want you to get that because this, this is extremely helpful because people stumble over this and I stumbled over this for quite a while. Okay? Okay, the, the next insight is being thankful is an act of my emotions that come as I realize the benefits of God's actions. Being thankful is an act of my emotions. See, this is what I want first. It's not first. That comes as I realize the benefits of God's actions, which may never happen. 
but can you trust God? Do you understand what I'm saying? It, there's no guarantee that I will always know why. And I don't have a right to demand you tell me why. God said, I'm sovereign. Dan Seale in Alabama, when they said, go out and pick cotton, the guy didn't say, well, boss, it's kind of hot. We'll do it later. No way. We don't know what it is to be owned by somebody else, do we? And yet I've been bought with a price, and I'm not my own. When God says, I'm sovereign, do this, what do we do? Do it. Can you trust him? It all goes back to trusting and believing and having faith. Can you trust the Father? And if you can't, go back and study the Gospel of John where God has revealed his Father. And most of you know the story of the prayer seminars and all that. I won't why it ever got birthed and all the struggles I had. Birthing the prayer deal. Okay. So the, the third insight now, after being the obedience, is we thank God for his higher purpose in this situation. What are we doing? We're acknowledging the sovereignty of God in my life. For years, to me, it was a minus, right? It was a minus. Horrible thing. It should never happen to me. So when I thank God as an act of my will, I'm acknowledging that God is sovereign. And God has a right to do what he does or to withhold whatever he does. Because he'll only do what's what? Right. And remember, if I have resentments or bitterness, I'm sitting in judgment on God. And I'm upset because God didn't clear with me what he's going to do or not do. Okay, you got that? Now, let me share what happened. You know, for years I felt that my childhood, I wouldn't wish on anybody because of all of the ongoing consequences that happened you know, after I left home and all of that kind of stuff. But I can tell you honestly today that I am very grateful to God that he allowed me to grow up in a family where I was not wanted. And for all the verbal abuse that I received, I am truly thankful for all of that. Why do you suppose? See, God was preparing me for a ministry I had no idea. He was preparing me to minister to men that I know exactly how they feel. And I can't tell you the hundreds of men that have been through my office that said, you understood where I was and you understood how I felt. And that meant more to them than all the answers or verses I could slap on the forehead. You know what I'm saying? I knew what they were feeling. I knew what they went through. It isn't that I read it in a book. I experienced it, and I knew the consequences and so on. And I could tell them to do the hard things. Why? Because I'd been there, and I had to do the same thing, and I knew how hard it was going to be for them. And so I realized that God was really preparing me for a ministry before I knew him. Isn't that neat? And I know that that has given me a wider ministry 
and a greater ministry because I had that experience than I would have had without that experience. I'm just saying we just have to trust him because often what we see as minuses are what? Pluses. But, we, but if we're rejecting it and pushing it away, we'll never see what? Why or ever discover why because we refuse to accept that God allowed me to go through this. Okay, and we're going to get back on new stuff. I'll only take one question. You have a question. Good, no questions. Ready? Okay, now we're going to go to the key day. For us, the day that changes everybody's, they'll tell you, people that leave our office are saying, Wednesday was the day that totally changed their whole perspective on their problems, their issues, and coming to freedom. Not Thursday, when we go through all the sexual stuff and all that kind of stuff, but Wednesday. And all of a sudden, they're seeing something that they've never saw before. They saw the bottom line cause of every single problem in a person's life. And they always came with what? Surface. Whether it was cross-dressing, transvestite, you know, stripping, male strippers, getting paid for it, male prostitutes, we've had that, teenage prostitutes that sell them, all this kind of stuff was only a symptom of something deeper. And we want to get into now what the deeper is. Okay. Yes, I'm not sure that, we're, we're trying to redo this whole thing. Okay. Yeah, 101. 101. Okay, this is Wednesday. And um, try, I can, I'm just trying to think. I got so wound up when I was sharing because that's so important. Not that this isn't important. I can't think where we even start. Oh, yeah. Okay. You can start. Thank you, Kevin. In either Ezekiel 14. I mean, Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14. I only go to Ezekiel 28 if I have teenagers because it connects Satan with music. So I want them to look at that Satan is involved in music, and they got to think, think about that uh, if they want freedom, that they can't withhold their music from God um, because the enemy may be using it. And, but usually we go to Isaiah 14. So Kevin is going to... Start with me in Isaiah 14. Okay, go to Isaiah 14 and read verses. Am I on here? You got me? Uh, Isaiah 14, read verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nation? Now, who is he talking about here? Satan. Yes, okay, keep reading. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Okay, so we know this is Satan here. And Satan, in verse 12, or 13 and 14, says, um, five I wills. I will do this, I will do that, I will do this. But who is he talking to when he says these five I wills? Well, the first part of 13, I think, helps me, and that is, it says, 
He said it to himself. Yeah, for thou hast said in thine heart. So Satan said this to himself. He never said it to God. Um, the last, the thing that I want to focus on, though, is the last I will. He says, I will be like, you want me to stop for a minute? Okay, because we're trying to go fast. Um, we need to tell you this, that we always tell our counselee, the most important conversations they have, they have with themselves. Right? The most important thing I ever say, I say to myself. Because he said, he said where? In his heart. And I went through the Bible, this particular Bible I have, and most of you know that when I read the Bible through, I always look for something, and I marked every verse in the Bible and, and chained it that had to do with thinking or thought. Does the Bible address thinking or thought? And you'd be amazed. You won't find the word. So doing the computer stuff, you're going to miss a lot because it may not, set in the heart, is not say thinking or thought. And you'll find set in the heart all over Scripture. It is, hits you all over the face in the Psalms. A wicked man says certain things in his heart. You know, uh, a, the uh, fool says certain things in his heart. A righteous man says certain things in his heart. So if a, a person's going to change, if a person's going to bring about a biblical change, is not just stop doing something. The biblical change takes place when they don't think like that anymore. So the goal is not just stopping something. The goal is having what? A change of thinking that no longer do they think like that. It's not there anymore. It's gone. There's a whole new thinking pattern, a whole new transformation, the renewing of the what? Of the mind. How shall the young man cleanse his ways? By not doing stuff. I don't think that's what it says. You know, just look through Scripture. It, it has to be a transformation in my mind. That's what we're looking for. Okay, go ahead. Thanks. Um, the most important conversation, like you said, will, you'll have with yourself. But he says five I wills here. But the last one is the one we want to focus on. I will be like the Most High. And the word there in the Hebrew for Most High is El Elyon. That's the name of God that Satan said he wanted to be like. And El Elyon has a wide range of meanings, but it basically boils down to this. The sovereign one that reigns in the heavenlies and on the earth. So that's what Satan wanted to be like. Now, a lot of people say that Satan rebelled, but... I don't think so. That's not what I get from this. Because Satan never said, God can no longer be God. He just said, I want to be like God. And if we went to Ezekiel 28, it says, For you have lifted yourself up. And the number one thing that Satan had, the, the reason why he got kicked out of heaven, was pride. You know, just, and pride is setting myself up as the final authority in my life. When I decide what's right and wrong for me, when I decide what I want to do. So when are you most like Satan? Not when you're off doing something. It's when you decide you're going to go off and do something. Because Satan didn't get kicked out of heaven for looking at pornography or rotten music. He just got kicked out of heaven for doing whatever he wanted to do. God can do his own thing, but let me do mine. Okay, now we're going to go to the book of Proverbs and go all through the book of Proverbs on the different verses on pride, and not one of them is positive. So go to chapter 6 to start out with.
And read uh, verse 16. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Okay, the word hate in, the, in the, the Bible is a strong word, but the strongest word ever used is the word abomination. I know you don't like broccoli, so you might hate broccoli, but it's not quite an abomination to you. Almost. But almost. <laughs> so these things are just an abomination to God. Some translations say they're detestable, but somehow detestable for me just doesn't cut it. Abomination is so much stronger. And what's the first thing on the list? A proud look. A proud look. Or haughty eyes if you guys have uh, NIV or something else. But a proud look. You know, pride on the kisser. That's the number one thing that is an abomination to God. That's the reason why Satan got kicked out of heaven. Um, go to chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. Okay, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. There's the word hate again. Pride and arrogancy. Now, there's a difference between pride and arrogancy, but they are cousins. They do go together. A person can be very prideful, but they can be very private about it, and no one would ever know. But if I'm arrogant, it's just displayed all over me. There's, you can see somebody, you can just say, you know, that person's arrogant. There's just an air about them. And they can't hide it. You know, pride is not the, you know, putting your makeup on for the girls or guys flexing in the mirror. That's not pride. That, that could be a form of it. But pride is just in the heart, what's really down in there. A person can be very humble, yet they're very prideful about their humility. But it, um, it says that God hates pride and arrogancy as much as an evil way and the forward mouth or a perverse mouth. Because if I'm prideful, it will lead to an evil lifestyle. Now go to chapter 11 and read verse 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Okay, every time a person is brought to shame, you know it started where? Oh, you're asking me. I was waiting for them to answer. <laughs> pride. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, and see, don't feel that, you're, that you are... Critical or have a critical spirit, you have a discerning spirit. If a ministry comes to shame, regardless of what brought them to shame, what was the root? What does the Bible say was the root? Pride. We've got to see that. When Baker and Swagger came down, the issue was not immorality. That was just a surface sign. What took them down was pride. That took them down. What brought the shame was really what? What was going on up there? But pride was the root of it. And ministries go down and people's lives go down. I'll tell you, if you don't help them deal with pride, they'll never be healed. We deal with the surface, don't we? We deal with the surface embarrassment, the surface stuff, but most often they don't get down to the real thing down below what really caused them to go down. Okay, the next verse is chapter 13, verse 10. Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. So anytime you know there's an argument or strife or something going on, it starts where? By pride. Now go to chapter 15, read verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the wicked. wicked. Widow. Widow. Okay, that's not talking about uh, the house, the, the physical building. It's talking about the family. It's not talking about termites and tornadoes. It's 
parents get divorced, kids run away, those kinds of things. Kids rebel. If, if, uh, it's no fun being in a, a house where you have a proud dad. You know, he's always right because he's the dad. He's never willing to admit his faults. And whenever there's somebody like that, a house will go down. Um, 16.5 Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though hand join in hand they shall not go unpunished. This is the strongest verse in the Bible on pride. Everyone, not just some that are proud in heart, but everyone that's proud in heart is an abomination. And when am I an abomination? When I take my stand with Satan. And when do I take my stand with Satan? When I'm prideful. prideful. And when am I prideful? When I decide what's right and wrong for me. <clears throat> when I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Read verse 18. This is one that even a lot of secular people know. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit uh, before a fall. So anytime somebody comes to destruction or taken down, you know it started with pride. Now, you can go to 28. This is the verse for you guys that are watching the tape or listening out there that you don't go to if they're using a different translation because it says not as proud in heart, it says greedy. So we just skip it if they're using NIV. But read 28.25. He that is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. Now it's not saying if you trust in God that you're going to be a fat person, but it's saying that you're going to be successful more because in the in the Bible times when they were writing this, if they had more meat on their bones, they were wealthier, they could eat more. You know, you were considered a wealthy person if you had more than two days worth of food in your house. Um, read, the last verse is 29-23. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So somehow it's just saying that pride is going to take me down if I don't deal with it. I'll run with it. Okay. The... If we had no other insights, you can trust God's word. And that is that if God said it's going to happen, it will happen. Pride not dealt with will bring horrendous destruction. But thank God the New Testament deals with pride. It goes on and tells us the dynamics of the fall. Go to James chapter 4. And read verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Okay. So, what does God want to give us? Grace. That's what most of the counselees will say, but it's wrong. And I tell them they're wrong, and they look really shocked. What does the first part of the verse say God will give us? More grace. More grace. Whatever it is, we get more of it. Um, and I use the illustration, you know, if you have money problems, in one hand I have some money, the other hand more money, which one do you want? Well, it's pretty obvious which Kevin would take. But what is, is grace? Well, Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident in this very thing, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ. Then Paul picks that up in, in chapter 2.13 and says, It is God that works in you, the same as he said in verse 6. But he uses the word both, to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
And this is, there may be many definitions for grace, but this is really a working definition for grace. And that is God giving me the desire and the power to make choices that would honor him. So grace is the desire and the power to make choices that would honor him. And as Kevin said, God will give us more grace or more power. So when Kevin goes back to the real world, I know that there's more power for him to make right choices uh, than, than he's ever experienced. Being in our office, for a lot of uh, the counselees, it's like a haven. They're in scripture to motel, they're having spiritual teaching, they're interacting with the Lord, they're praying, they're making, you know, getting things right, and it's like they don't want to go back. Even though they're staying in a lousy motel, they're saying, I don't want to go back. You know, it's so neat to be. I just wish I could live like this, you know, where there's so much scripture and prayer and all that going on. But they have to go back. But what do I know? When Kevin goes back and everyone else goes back, there's always more what? Grace. Will he be tempted? Yes. But I know that there's always more grace. Now, if there's all this power to make right choices, as the title of my book, why are there so many losers on the winning team? How come there's so many defeated Christians? Well, <clears throat> what we see is this, is that in Corinthians, I believe it is, on oh, no, Romans. Romans says, if God be for us, what, Kev? Who can be against us? But Kevin, if God is resisting you, does it make any difference to who's for you? No. And when does God resist you? When I'm prideful. I hope you guys are getting this. And don't you think Satan knows this? Let me throw in a two cents thing here. I was counseling a missionary, and I didn't know the difference between Ramos and Logos. And so I quoted a scripture. I told this demon to leave and quoted the scripture wrong. And I could tell by the body language when he kicked back and folded his arms, the demon didn't go anywhere. You know, when they do this, it's not a good sign. And um, so this is back when I was talking to demons, okay, kid? And so I asked the demon, I said, why didn't you go? And he said, you quoted the verse wrong. Well, I knew I quoted the verse wrong, but so did the demon. Are you getting that? I didn't have my Bible open. But he knew the verse, and he knew that I didn't say the words King James, word for word. I raimed it, but I didn't know that. So I got my Bible out, and I'm looking like crazy. Now, who's running the counseling session? <laughs> Not me. And I'm looking for the verse, and finally I find it in Mark, and it's with the finger of God, Jesus removes the demon. Remember that one, with the finger of God? It's why it's Mark. So I found it, and I read it to the demon. I said, now what? He said, I guess I got to go. And I said, yeah, <laughs> you're out of here. But <clears throat> what I'm getting at is, listen, don't you think the, the enemy knows about James? Don't you think he knows that if he gets you prideful, what's gone off your life? Spiritual power. Then what's going to come in? A big temptation. And the Bible says pride goes before what? A fall. Because Satan knows he can bring something bigger that you can deal with. With all your grit and determination, you'll go down. And so 
the temptation you have to watch out for is not pornography or whiskey. You know, that's not, the big temptation is what? Becoming self-centered. Because once you're there, whatever your issue is will take you down. See, the issue is not important. You see why we don't get all caught up in the issue, all this and this and this thing? That's not the real issue. That's just you had these experiences. But the real issue is a pride issue, and we know if we can't get him through that and get him to see it, he'll walk out in defeat, and I don't care who prays over him or how much oil you dump on him. You know, it's a pride has got to be dealt with. It's the bottom line of all sin. It's the bottom line of all marital problems. It's the bottom line of all defeat is pride. Biblically, that's where it is. Okay, now let's go back there. See, so he said, if, if, if God be for you, what's the rest of that verse? But if God is resisting you, does it make any difference who's for you? And when God resists you, what happens? Spiritual power comes off your life. And then all those things in Proverbs, you get, it makes sense. Every one of those things in Proverbs fits. Because I can only grab the bedpost so long. I can only try to, to be spiritual in the flesh. Fight the devil with grit and determination and grab the bedposts and all that stuff. It's not going to work. But God gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. Okay. You see that, Kevin? Yeah. God gives grace to the humble. Now, Kevin, a humble man is not one that says, oh, that wasn't very good. I can't do anything. That's sick. That's not humble. That's sick, okay? A humble man is says, God, if you don't work in my life, it isn't going to happen. <coughs> That's it. God, if you don't work in my life, it isn't going to happen. God, I need you, and I need your help. So the first thing I need to do as a believer is to humble myself before the Lord and tell God I need him. Then we go on here. What is the next thing I need to do in verse 7? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit means to rank under. And Kevin, I have a homework assignment for you to bring tomorrow when you come in for counseling. If you're to submit your life to God, what are the areas of your life that you need to submit to God? Now, I'll just give you a couple because I want you to think them through yourself and make a list of these because tomorrow, when we pray against the enemy and so on, we want the Holy Spirit to take control of these areas. But we know, number one, that you're a son, and we know that you're a brother. Are you willing to submit your, being a son to your, to, to your parents, to be the son you ought to be to the Holy Spirit, being a brother to your sister that you ought to be? And we've already talked about music. Are you willing to submit your music to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Warren Risby said, any area of your life that you don't want God to control, Satan will. That's, that's a strong statement. Do you see where this day, this part of it is the most important of the whole week? It really is. Because any area that I said I'm not going to give to God, I put a bullseye in my chest and Satan will go after it. And it's going to take you down. And I need to yield all areas of my life to the control of the Spirit of God. And you've got to identify those areas. 
Then from the area of submitting those areas to God, what am I to do? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist means to push away, not to allow to remain, stay, or enter. Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament Greek words. So I am to resist the devil and he will flee from me. But I have to realize that Satan is going to put pressure on me to resist God. And if I resist, if I'm resisting God in any area of my life, Satan will go nowhere. And people say warfare doesn't work, Kevin, or it does. They're just not working it. Warfare is not on my terms. It's on God's terms. And if I do what God says, then I'll walk in the victory of the cross. So I need to resist the enemy from a place of submission. Of submission. So I need to humble myself. I need to submit myself, and I need to resist. Those words are so important. Now, <clears throat> Kevin, I've got a very difficult question to ask you, and I don't know if I can give you all the answers, but I want to try to give you some of them. How can I resist an enemy that I cannot see if I don't know he's there? <clears throat> Why is it often I don't know the enemy's there until after I'm defeated? Isn't that too late? Do I have to be living a defeated life, you know, and then figure out this, it was the devil that pushed me off the sidewalk? Why can't I see it before? I don't want to walk around with a crucifix, and yet I do want to recognize when the enemy is there so I can do what God told me to do. And Kevin, the answer to this question is in James chapter 1. I'm so thankful James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote, this book and was led by the Spirit to write it because it's so practical. You not, may not be aware of this, Kevin, but the first book written in the Old Testament was Job, about a man coming under demonic attack. Many theologians believe the first book written in the New Testament is James, about resisting the devil. And it seems to me like the two first messages that God got out, old and new, had to do with the enemy attacking people. That's pretty high on God's priority list. I want you to read verse 13 of chapter 1. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So first of all, Kevin, God is saying in his word that if what I'm faced with, if I do it, will draw me away from God, it's not of God. Hmm. See, Satan will tempt me to draw me away from God. But God can test me to draw me to himself. Um, and sometimes it, it's difficult to tell the difference between is this a temptation or is this the test? And James 1, before that, is talking about praying for wisdom. So I may need to discern because look what happened. You drove here the other day. You're using your own money to support yourself, to counsel at our office because we don't have banquets because no one would go. Uh, the banquets are just, everybody has a banquet in Sioux City, and Sioux City is small. It's not like here. And the Christian community is very small. Even the Alpha Center, which is the pregnancy center that one of my board members' wife runs, has a difficult time with banquets anymore. I mean, you know, Youth for Christ has a banquet, and, and the Shriners have a banquet, and, you know, everybody can think is having banquets, and people are just, CEF has banquets, and we don't need another banquet. You know, you're going to put a lot of money out, and we're not going to get much in return. So 
we just have to trust God. So we don't have the money to pay Kevin's salary, so he's paying his own money till it's gone, and then it's all over. And coming here, um, you, you know, this the other day, driving here, uh, his radiator went out. And it cost them 400 and some... I'm telling everybody, 400 and some dollars. Well, the reason I'm telling you that, and you didn't tell me to do it, uh, but I'll split with you. <laughs> no, but the reason I'm saying that is, was that the devil or was that God? Do you understand what I'm saying? Here you are on a shoestring using the little bit of savings you have to make it stretch as far as possible so you can stay at the office and help people because we don't have the money to pay a salary. And then, was that the devil or was that God? See, it wasn't, should Kevin bought whiskey or not buy whiskey? You know what I mean? Obviously, that may, you know, you know what that is. But what about, not everything is easy. Do you understand what I'm trying to, it's not always cut and dry. And you need, was, was God testing him to, to show Kevin he's going to meet his needs? Or was Satan doing it, trying to keep him from getting to Sioux City? I don't know. And sometimes we can't know for other people, can we? We just have to, to pray about that thing. So, but we do know that God will, can test us uh, to, to reveal himself strong on our behalf we never would have known. So it, it, it's very interesting. We know that if the result obviously is to pull me away from God, then it's the devil. But I can fail a God's test. You know, I can't. I can say, no way. Abraham could have said what? I'm not going to offer Isaac. Sorry. He's my only son. You know, God, I'm willing to do all kinds of things, but to stab my son and burn his body, you're asking too much. There's no way I'm going to do that. But then he'd have missed Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. So um, sometimes it's easy, but sometimes people need us to try to help them to look and to figure out really what's going on here so they can do what they ought to do. Okay. So we do know that God doesn't tempt us to evil. I want you to read 14 through 16, Kev. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Or the word err there in your more modern translations is don't be deceived. Remember he said Satan's a deceiver? Don't be deceived. All of us are tempted in the same way. Don't be deceived. But we're not always tempted in the same area. So let's go back and let's look at this. If you have a new American, it's the only one that switches the phrase. And I think a new American is wrong. New King James, King James, NIV, um, living, um, living Bible translation. Uh, what do I else have? I have the New English Bible translation. I can't even think of all the translations I got. I just got a new one. I don't even know. Uh, it was really different. I haven't read it yet. I get my wife croaks every time CBD comes, and I got a different Bible in it. Oh, we Bible for. I said, "Well, I haven't read this translation yet." Um, so it's I forget. It's a one that I've never heard of before, but I'm gonna try it. Um, go through it and see how how it reads. But um, all of them will say this except the New American so far. Verse fourteen. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own secret desires and enticed. 
the new American looks like he's enticed by his secret desires, and that's not a good way to put it. See, why don't I recognize, who is the enticer? Who is the tempter? See, it's interesting. The Bible tells us to resist the devil twice. The Bible never tells us to resist temptation. And yet I taught that in two Bible colleges. Why did I teach that? Because I didn't believe in the tempter, that's why. If you don't believe in the devil, why would you tell kids to resist the devil? You tell them to resist temptation, but there isn't a verse. So if Satan's not behind all temptations, which ones is he? So I'll resist him. There's got to be a list. But there isn't one. The Catholics have one. You know, the mortal sins and the venial sins. So he's got to at least be behind the mortal sins. So maybe I get the Catholic list so I know when to resist the devil. Or is God assuming that he's behind all temptations? What does he do? He's a tempter. We'll get into this in, in a minute. But the reason I don't recognize the enemy is it's my secret desires he goes after. He sets me up to fulfill my secret desires. Every man is tempted and he's drawn away of his own lust or secret desires and enticed by the enticer or tempted by the tempter. Now, if I don't, if I deal with it at that point, I'm fine. If not, when that lust hath conceived, remember Ananias and Sapphira conceived there? Remember that in Acts 5? When that lust has conceived, what's it going to bring forth? Sinful actions. And if I keep living in that lifestyle, that sinful action will ultimately bring forth death. And that's spiritual death and physical death. There is a sin unto death in Hebrews, but at least spiritual death. Because when I regard sin in my heart, God will not hear me when I talk to him. So that's death. You know, you can't talk to a dead man in a coffin. And when I'm living in sin and want to live in sin, enjoy the pleasures of sin and all of that, in a sense, I'm dead to God as far as fellowship goes. Until I'm willing to confess, put it aside, I can get back in fellowship and walk with God. Now let's go back to this thing, Satan behind all temptation. There are verses that we want to look at, but before we do, I want to share with you um, some of the verses they throw at me uh, to tell me I'm wrong. And I used to say, I think he's behind all temptation. I don't anymore. I say he is behind, and I'm willing to take the hits. Okay. One is they'll say, what about the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, the Bible says the whole world lies in Satan, the wicked one. The flesh is where my sin patterns are, and the devil will use the world system and my patterns to defeat me. Not every temptation is going to be direct. Mrs. Job was indirect, wasn't she? She hadn't read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you know, where God said, I want, I mean, Satan said to God, I want Job to curse you. So she comes and says, curse God and die. A lot of my temptations are going to be people and situations that Satan is using to get me down. But I need to look beyond. We don't wrestle what? Flesh and blood. We better get back to that. Our battle is not people. It's not people. The battle is spirits. We wrestle. Paul said we all wrestle demonic spirits. 
Okay. Another one they give, make no provision for the flesh. Well, if you have pornography under the mattress, burn it. It doesn't say resist temptation. It says get rid of the stuff that you can get rid of. Anything that you have that you know that Satan can use to pull you down, Kevin, get rid of it. It's under your jurisdiction. Get rid of it, burn it, throw it away, or whatever. The next one is flee youthful lusts. And I'm going to address you with this because Kevin already knows, and I got this from uh, an Arab whose father is the, the Dr. Dobson of the Arab Emirates. The, daughter, the doctor's, uh, his father's on the UN, the do, he's a psychiatrist, runs a, a psychiatric hospital in the Arab Emirates. His mother's a medical doctor, and he's been disowned because of his commitment to Christ. And God brought this kid in my life a few years ago, and I wanted to know some things. And the one I want to know is about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Number one, remember marriages in Egypt, and also with this boy, are arranged. Arrange marriages. And the families arrange it. So he told me some things about Mrs. Ponifer. Number one, she would have been very educated because her husband was where? High in the courts. There's no way they would pull just some, you know, servant-type person. Secondly, she'd have been beautiful. Why? Because of his position. So his father has what for a wife? A doctor. <laughs> An attractive doctor. You know, they're way up. They have servants. They have five houses in Europe. He has indentured servants to him. And so Mrs. Ponifer would have been very beautiful. Joseph did not flee because she was very unattractive. No way, sister. Yeah, I'm out of here. You know, <clears throat> that was not the issue. The issue was the opposite. The issue was she'd have been very attractive. She would have been very alluring. She would have been a real possibility for him to fail. So we got to see that rather than she was so repulsive, he ran. No, she was so delectable, he ran. And also that he was a slave. And he told me, my dad has indentured slaves today in the Arab Emirates. Their family has owned money to our family for generations. And there's no way they can ever be free. And he said, my dad is an honorable man, but my dad could do whatever he wants to with somebody he owns. And there's nothing you can do about it. Remember back in the old southern days, down south in the slavery? They had no what? Will of their own. If they wanted to be immoral with somebody, that's what it was. And they could not do anything about it. And so Joseph was owned. He was a slave. He was, you know, a slave of this woman. But he had a higher standard than the standard of Egypt. Isn't that beautiful? When you put it and think what it was, and he just got out of there. And that's exactly, flee. You know, if you got a problem with pornography, don't even go by the places that sell it. Drive another way. You know, do what you can, what I need to do, to not to set myself up for failure. I need to do my part. But I have to realize there is a tempter out there that would love to tempt me. Okay, go, Kevin, to, let's look at some verses that say Satan's the tempter. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Here is a church falling apart. 
This church is literally falling apart, and Paul sees what the issue is. There's probably people fighting, you know, over what color to paint the ladies' bathroom or, you know, what hymnals we're going to have. Who knows what was going on there? But Paul put his finger on it, didn't he? He didn't put it on the people or, the, you know, the, the hymnal situation or whatever. He said that Satan got in the church, and I thought he was going to take it down, that this church was going to come to absolutely nothing, and maybe that's the first time that people had any awareness who was really behind what was going on. Remember what I'm telling you. Satan can use people and situations. You don't even see him. You don't even sense his presence. You don't get a chill. You ever been in a church fight? Huh? You ever been in a church where there's strife? What does Proverbs say is the root of that? Pride. Now, who is pushing the pride? Who's behind that? Who wants to take churches down? The enemy. Okay. Now go to 1 Thessalonians, I mean 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Kevin. I know this may be hard, but I'm telling you, I didn't come to this overnight. It took me a long time to come here, to, the, to, this, to believing this. But I'm, it's something I'll bleed over. And I, I'm not asking you to accept what I'm saying. I'm saying you search the scriptures, and if you can show me in the Bible a verse that says resist temptation, I will change my teaching. But I'll show you verses that says resist the tempter, and I've got to stick with it. And I haven't found it, and I read the New Testament through probably four times a year. Go ahead, Kevin. Defrauding not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. He's saying that married couples need to come together intimately, regularly, because if they don't, they're setting up one or the other for Satan to tempt them. You know, the mailman gets better looking, the secretary or whatever, and he's saying, listen, you know, it's not that they're going to have sex with demons. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying Satan's going to arrange an affair. That's what he's going to do. Why? You're setting it up because you're not doing what God said to do. And we need to know that. And so when you hear someone having an affair, first of all, don't always blame the person doing it. Because some, maybe the innocent person, has had this person on the couch for three years. Or something. I'm not saying you ought to have an affair. Please don't understand, but be careful about judging and saying who's innocent here. You know, the innocent person was the one that wasn't done on, but the one that did it is, is guilty, but the innocent one, when you hear the story, isn't too innocent. Am I making sense? Say yes, if you don't agree with me. Yeah, be very careful about taking sides. He that hears one side of the story and comes to the conclusion is not high in the book of Proverbs. Um, <clears throat> well, it's a truth, but we have a tendency to do that. You know, we, we need to hear both sides if we have to make some kind of a judgment. Um, go to um, First Timothy. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to go there. Let's go to First Timothy. I'm trying to figure out. We're running out of time, and I get rattled when we run out of time. Um, because what we're doing now is the most important, really. I think seeing the first day is super important, and this is super important. The rest of it you can read. We can go over a little more of it tonight's stuff. Okay, 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, so here we see that he's saying not only that putting a, a new believer into uh, leadership in a church, but also uh, putting a guy in leadership that has a terrible testimony. Um, a good friend of mine who's, who is, um, got to be careful, this is being taped, is from a very wealthy family, extremely wealthy family, um, extremely, extremely, extremely wealthy family, and his brother is extremely, extremely, extremely wealthy. And this extremely, extremely wealthy brother came to counsel with me and it didn't work. And this brother was having an affair with a lady in a small town where he was in leadership in the church. You know, deacon, head of this committee, that committee, all that stuff. Um, it's amazing sometimes what a few bucks can buy in a church, <laughs> like leadership. And um, so my friend was a little bit concerned when we weren't helping him, does the pastor know what's going on? Does he know that he's married and sleeping around, not sleeping around, sleeping with a person pretty regularly? So he called the church, which was a uh, conservative, really a conservative church, one that most all of you would be willing to go to, and uh, asked the pastor if he knew that his brother was having an affair. And he said, yes. And he said, well, why don't you bring church discipline? And he said, because he gives like 70% of the church budget. That's what he's talking about here. You get this? You think this guy has a good testimony in the community when everybody knows what his car looks like and it's not parked at home? It's somebody else's home? Anyway, bad, bad stuff. Uh, and those are hard things for a pastor to deal with, but I'll tell you, he better... Is he doing this guy any favor? No. And what does the word of God say here? Now, he added a dimension here that we have not seen before. He's saying that Satan is not only the tempter, he's also setting what? Traps. He's a trapper. See, he's setting snares. He's going to fall into the snares of the devil. That's someone who traps. I went through the Bible, which we can't, we don't have time, and looked up all the traps of Satan, the snares, the nets, all those things. See, I, I get excited when I see something for the first time. I mean, it's been in the Bible all along, but it didn't just hit me in the face until not too long ago. And I go, man, man, Satan's setting traps. You know, I don't even know what they are. I better find out what they are. I may be in three of them, you know. <laughs> if I don't know what they are, how do I know? You know, I better get a better look in the Bible and figure out this stuff. You know, I believe that that the Bible is true. I just taught the guys how to counsel from the Bible. At thing, and they're, what's neat is some of my students now, our professors in other Bible schools, are teaching the same thing I taught them. They've sent me their notes that, I, that they took my class, and that's what they're teaching today because Bible counseling doesn't change. It's not cultural. Isn't that neat? It isn't cultural. It's all Scripture. And it says in Scripture, God has given me everything for life and godliness. Has he or has he not? Either it's there or it's not there. If that's true, it's not true. I have to go outside of this. Now, outside's okay, but the outside is not the final authority. This has to be the final authority. 
then I have to base outside stuff on this book, not the other way around, this book on outside stuff. Okay, now let's go to 1 Timothy 6, read verse 9. Here's another trap of Satan. But they that will be rich fall into the temptation and snare into snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Okay, another deal, another trap here uh, he's talking about is pursuing money. Wanting to get rich is a real trap of Satan. Because what happens with people that are pursuing riches? Where do they level off? They never do. They never have what? Never have enough. So they're pursuing riches, and he says that is a real trap of Satan. Now, I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, but I want to give, give you the verses. I've got to tell you my story. When I pastored my first church, it was in nowhere, California. And we were uh, 100 miles one way from a major grocery store, uh, Penny's, Sears, or whatever. They just had fires in that area. Remember that gold area, the gold mine and all that was, was on fire in California out of Redding? Well, we were 100 miles one way from Redding, 100 miles one way from Klamath Falls, 75 miles one way to a drugstore. You know, so it was a 200-mile round trip to do any kind of shopping or anything like that. I didn't know a place like this existed. Um, when you came to our town, if you burped, you were through it. You know, I mean, it was... It was 480 people within 60 miles one way, 40 miles another way, 18 miles one way. You know, I'm telling you, the only thing that was in that town was loggers and cowboys. And here I am, a city guy, a flatlander. That's not positive by the people who live up there. A flatlander is their pastor who hated it. We had wood stoves. Didn't know they had those things. I mean, it was unbelievable. I'm going, I'm at the end of the world. There must have been something I did in my former life that put me here. You know, I, I must be doing penance. Oh, I hated it. The first year I prayed that God would take me out of that horrible place. And, you know, I would get a job doing anything, but I'm not going to pastor these hillbillies that don't like me because I am not a logger. I'm not a cowboy. When I am my most wonderful physique, as I was in the Army, I weighed 156 pounds at six foot one. You know, and I don't really stop traffic or anything. They go, oh, that poor guy. Can we take you to the hospital? <laughs> I wasn't very macho male and all. I mean, you ever seen loggers and cowboys? Give me a break. I'm going, oh. And the amazing thing is God brought a revival up there because I was a threat to nobody. <laughs> all these loggers are getting saved, all these cowboys. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe what happened. And I cried when I left. You know, I mean, it was, I hated it when I got there, and you could hardly get me out of there. I just wept because, <clears throat> you know, they were really neat guys, and they needed the Lord. I was, you know, and I was, they would talk to me. It was, it was wonderful. But the first guy that got saved was a town drunk, and none of the teenagers would come to our church unless John would come. I got, well, there's the name of John in this town. I know everybody. I think I know everybody. And one day I meet this guy coming off of a drunk on a weekend. John and another guy for their recreation, would go into a bar, stand back to back, and have a fight, and clean the whole bar out of loggers and cowboys. Through windows, I mean, it was just like the old West days. And they said, wasn't that good? You know, another beer, please. <laughs> I got joint all cleaned up guys laying all over the place. That was, I mean, it's, when another guy came home one time, 
He finally got saved, this guy. I, no one ever thought he would. Came home, his wife had locked the door, and he goes out and drinks on the logging trail because no one had drink with him. He's so mean. Comes home, the door's locked. He takes his gun out, shoots the locks off the door, kicks the door open, walks in, and says, don't ever do that again. I mean, the closest police officer was 100 miles away. You know, there was nothing there. It was wide open. If you ever been on logging tongs and logging camps, let me tell you, wide open, bunch of drunks, bunch of fighters, and horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Anyway, so God stuck me up there. Well, one day, John did get saved. This drunk got saved, and our church was full of teenagers, well, full as you could have of, you know, a town of 480 people. I think we had every teen in church, and uh, all two of them. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Few more, but anyway. <clears throat> um, one day, John said, hey, pastor, you want to go on my trap line? I go, oh, yeah, that'd be neat. But he never explained it to me. And I'd only been there a short time. I mean, maybe John was saved the first year I was there. And I'm going, hmm. You know, we trap mice in LA. <laughs> I had no clue of what was going to be like. I mean, if you, you can't vision. He didn't show me anything, the jerk. You know, he didn't show what a trap looked like or what was going to happen, you know? I mean, I could have walked through and got bit by something, you know? If, if he didn't tell me anything. So we're, we're trudging through the woods. And of course, we were surrounded by woods because uh, it's a logging community. And we're going through the woods. And all of a sudden, we come to the first trap. And I happened to be in front of him. And he yelled. And I almost stepped in it. First time I shared this was in Alaska to missionaries. And John was sitting there. He flew in with his plane. I said, you remember that, John? He said, yeah, you were so stupid. I said, John, you just ruined my credibility with all these missionaries. You know, <laughs> calling me stupid. I beg your pardon. But anyway, I was stupid. But you know, would you want to step? Have you ever seen those traps? You know, they go like this. And you go, <laughs> you know, do you want to put your foot in the middle of one of those with a pair of tennis shoes? I'll tell you, you don't. And I nearly did. Now, why would I almost put my foot in the middle of a steel animal trap? I didn't know it was there. Why didn't I know it was there? I sort of knew it was there. I was paying a lot of attention. The traps are totally concealed. Leaves, pine, you cannot tell the difference where the trap is than three feet, three feet over, where there's no trap. But I did see something that let me know the trap was there. What did I see? No, the snake is healed, uh, healed, the hot hidden, concealed. the chain is hidden, but I did see something. What? The bait. The bait, which was a dead rabbit hanging in a tree. So it was hanging. So I thought it was the rabbit he caught. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. Come on. You hillbillies. <laughs> I mean, what do you know? I didn't know. I thought maybe that's it. <laughs> but it looked pretty stiff, you know? <laughs> but anyway. John yelled, and I didn't step in it. But I want you to see that because, to me, this is the most phenomenal verse I can share with you about Satan, by keeping that in mind. And that's 24 through 26 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. But you need the story to paint these verses. And the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God preventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. 
I usually don't like to say that the King James blew it, but the King James blew it um, <laughs> right here. Because if you read that, it's totally inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. Because what he read, Kevin read, that the devil who has taken them captive at his will. I mean, anytime Satan wants to cap me, I've, uh, capture me, I've got it. I mean, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? But all the rest of translations and in some of your Bibles with King James will put a footnote and put the right translation. And this is the right translations. That they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him or Satan to do his will. See how powerful that is? To do his will. I will not see what? I will never see the trap. All I'll see is what? The bait. Satan is the trapper. He is the tempter. Am I going to see the devil? No. Not usually, thank God. But I'll see what? The bait. And guess what? He knows what I go for. And if I take the bait, I am no longer doing the will of God. I'm doing the will of Satan. You've got to see that. But that can really keep me from what? Becoming bait conscious. So I just, I'm not committed to the will of Satan. I don't want to do that. You know, I need to begin to smell the devil. You know, it's, this has got satanic stuff all over it. And I'm not going there. I'm not going to touch that. I'm going to flee that. I'm going to resist that. I'm not going there. Um, We've got to finish this up afterwards, but I was thinking of something. Oh, yeah. It's the most amazing thing. God put me in the hunter's paradise of California where I was pastoring. People drove up from Los Angeles to hunt deer and antelope because they played up there. And, um, <clears throat> well, it is where the antelope play, you know. The deer, the antelope. <laughs> and, and I'm not a deer killer. And we started getting all these roughnecks saved in our church, characters, unbelievable characters. And they said, hey, pastor, you're going to go out deer hunting with us? Just give me a break. I'm a Christian. I'm not a killer. And <laughs> this is how nice they are. They said, oh, no, we didn't want you to kill them. We just wanted you to slit their throat while they're kicking. <laughs> I said, oh, there's no hope for you guys. <laughs> you know, I thought you were saved. <laughs> anyway, I mean, characters, and I love them, they love me, but I just was not ever one of them. Then I pastored a church at, uh, let's say, Bernie Falls. I pastored a church at oh, the Falls in Washington. <laughs> Oh, I can't think of the name of the place. It's terrible. Anyway, we have the largest fish ladders in the world. That's where the salmon go up. Out of Seattle, up above there. We're right below Mount Pilchuck, all of that. I don't fish either. See, God could trust me. You know, he could put me there because, you know, I'm not going to spend my time catching salmon. I didn't mind if other people caught salmon and gave it to me. But, see, I'm not a fisherman. I never had the patience. I'd rather swim than, you know, drowned worms. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, so, but I know that when you fish, you use different baits and different techniques. 
to catch different kinds of fish, right? You know, you troll, you fly cast, you know. And I told Kevin this a long time ago. I said, Kevin, as my son, is a fish. I said, Kevin, if you see a worm all scrunched up, don't go for it. It's probably got a hook in it. And there's a line, and I know who's holding the pole. Can you guys realize that? You got an enemy that's setting a trap for you, a fisherman or a trapper, and he knows what you would go for. Do you know what he, you would go for? That's what I tell my counselees. Do you know what you go for? You better figure it out. You better spend some time today praying and saying, God, what bait will Satan put out for me that will cause me to take it and I'll live defeated? Now, if you don't know, pray about it. It can be emotional type stuff. It could be other kind of stuff. But there is a trapper out there, and he is trying to trap every one of us in this room. He wants us to live defeated lives. So we'll stop on that one, I think. Um, and we want to come back because uh, some more stuff in pride, and then we can run through the other 40 things real quickly.